What's up, friends? Welcome back to Culture Binge. Uh, this is the Wisecrack Podcast, where we spread our wings and soar through the winds and clouds of the cultural zeitgeist. I'm your host, Michael Burns, joined as always by the woman who once convinced me not to accept a job because it paid me solely in unlimited meals and sparkling beverages, Serby. Serby, how are you today? Hi, everyone. I'm well. Awesome. And today's special returning guest, um, someone who once, I saw this happen, she made a group of children cry by telling them that Sonic isn't real. Helen Flourish. Helen, great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me again, guys. Oh, I mean, so I would. happy you're back. Yeah, pleasure is all ours. I think I can say that pretty confidently. Um, well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. As always, when do we ever not? Um, So we'll talk about last week's devastating IPCC report on the state of the climate. We'll talk about the end of the perk-heavy office. And most importantly, we'll talk about the dark side of cute hedgehogs. But first, everyone except for my favorite segment, Slaps and Chaps, where we talk about something that we're really digging that's going on culturally and something that we're not digging. I mean, I feel like the guest has the right to start first here. So if you're up for it, Helen, what are your slaps and chaps for this week? All right. Yeah, let me kick this off. So first of all, slaps. Number one, it's raining in my part of Southern California, which is nice. amazing because it is blisteringly hot. And um, then as far as other slaps, actually, slaps to you guys for bringing um, Tom Wyman on the last episode. He was fantastic. He was great. I'm excited to read his book. Um, it's good. I can confirm. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, as far as chaps, you know, I think we're going to cover most of them in this episode, actually. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So we can just jump right into them. Awesome. Um, sir, we have about you, Slaps and Chaps. So what chaps is that I... Uh, I gained some weight during uh, the post breakup of 2020 and the pandemic. And oh my gosh, it's so much harder to lose weight than it is to put it on. And I'm kind of glad that hot back summer never, never <laughs> happened because I wasn't feeling it. And I certainly didn't want anyone else to so feel it. So you're saying you are glad that the Delta variant is <laughs> ripping through the country. That's fair. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Essentially. Uh, and then what slaps is that I have a leadership development coach. Um, Whoa, what does that mean? Yes. So it's basically like an executive coach, but since I'm not an executive, I just call her my leadership development coach. Um, she usually works with like really fancy titled people. Um, and since I'm friends with fancy titled people, I feel like I was able to slip in. Um, and she's wonderful Ooh. and amazing and insightful. And she like will talk through specific issues at work or if there are greater decisions that I need to make about career or um, how to develop skills, like things like that. She's really well attuned to the difficulties that women specifically face in business. Um, and I can't articulate enough how much she's helped me and it. It really has been life changing, I would say, because it's not just like for me, my career and my life are so are so deeply intertwined. Like I identify a lot with my career, um, which is not probably that healthy, but whatever. Um, 
And so it has helped me a lot. So I highly encourage everyone to find a coach if you are dealing with uh, big career decisions or you want to improve a specific skill skill, or you're dealing with something uh, hard at work. Um, it's That's been amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the world would be better if we had like less bosses and more coaches. Because, you know, coaches is like you associate them with they're, they're trying to help you achieve excellence even through tough love and training. And a boss, it's just like you're trying to exploit me for all you can for the least amount possible. Um, once I fell in love with a woman who told me she had a life coach and I thought it was funny, but then it turned out the life coach was just some guy she ended up cheating on me with. So also be careful. Be careful if you hear the term life coach. Um, listen, I think they ended up getting together. So it all worked out. If they're listening, I hope it's great and that you have cute kids because I'm not a bitter guy. Um, speaking of chaps, um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, I will say my, my chap is um, overall existential human vibes. I feel like Helen kind of alluded to this. Um, there's been a lot of bad news in the past couple of weeks. I'm not going, going to say it all because this pod, the goal of this podcast isn't to bum you out. It's to, you know, hang out and talk about some ideas with you. But yeah, I think overall it's been just like a chappy vibe. Um, hopefully we come out of that. Hopefully things get better. I'm not going to say anything positive because we're still in the chap space, but it's a bummer. And I do think we all pictured something different for late summer and early fall than what we are currently getting so let's hope for the best. Um, slaps. This one's tough. I'll say two things really quick. Um, two shows that have been airing on HBO, one of which just ended, have been the two best things I've watched in a while. One, The White Lotus. I'm sure a lot of you have watched it. If you haven't watched it, it's a six-episode series created by Mike White. It's really good. It's about sort of like class divisions and ideology and the weird things that rich people do and say. Um, it takes place on a tropical resort in Maui. It's just very good. The other thing I've been watching that I love is a documentary series on HBO called The 100-Foot Wave. And it's about a, a kind of like psychotic in a fun way surfer who's very old and is spending his life trying to surf the biggest wave possible and it's dangerous and scary and cool and set in portugal and just like a very fun hang um when you've had a rough week watching people you know almost die surfing giant waves is very fun so watch both of those if you need stuff to watch but you know there's always lots of stuff to watch um now before we really dive in just a reminder if you enjoy listening to culture binge and even if you don't enjoy it but you still listen out of a sense of duty um like it subscribe to it review it um if you review it g give us the highest metric possible if you think we've earned it if you don't think that just don't review it and email us and we'll talk about how we can improve it and if you do review the podcast have fun with it something we always encourage is to let us know what we would all be in a category of things so you could say for example like what fruit would everyone be um, and you could tell us what fruit we'd be and why. You could say, what Olympic sport would any of us be as we get over our Olympic hangovers or something like that. Um, and if you're listening to it right now, make sure you include Helen in that. Um, we're still getting some where you say what Alec is and we appreciate it, but you know, we gotta, we gotta move forward a little bit and <laughs> get everyone else in the rotation. So please do that. And also it just means a lot to us when you review the show, um, subscribe, tell your friends about all that sort of stuff. Please do that. Um, but without further ado, let's get into it. Serby's going to start us out today, and I'm I'm sad about this. Um, Serby, you're going to let us know about why the golden age of office perks is dying. Yes. So, if any of you 
uh, have worked in the corporate world, or if you're familiar with the corporate world, you've likely heard of some of the amazing perks that are available to the team. So from free gourmet meals to chauffeur services, uh, I've heard of gym memberships, I've heard of like um, free dry cleaning, unlimited vacation. Uh, Companies often offer these perks to attract top talent. And while these wild perks may have seen may have been all the craze in the past, new research from Kansas State University and the University of Missouri's Novak Leadership Institute suggests that workers younger than 35 are no longer interested in those perks and what they value more is respect. So an emerging sentiment from this group is that rather than build a company focused on like Um, an arcade room or ping pong table or something like that. They want companies to focus more on developing managers to communicate respectfully and to help empower managers to nurture employee well-being. And the younger workforce cares primarily about how they're treated by their managers. They don't care about having kombucha on tap. So Danielle Legree, an assistant professor of strategic communication at Kansas State University, led the study, and she believes that based on the research, leaders need to get to know their team outside of work. So what are their motivations? What are their passions? What are their interests? And once they know those things, they can work to nurture them. So she sums it up pretty well by saying, It might be that fun work perk like a ping pong table or beer on tap that are effective at attracting new talent when you walk them through the office. But over time, they see through all of that. In terms of engaging these employees and retaining them over time, they want their leaders to advocate for them. Part of doing that is showing them respect. So before I chat about my experiences, because I've worked at startups my entire career, um, I'd like to hear from the two of you and what your thoughts are on office perks and respect. Do you think that this is the end of office perks? Like, do people just want to be treated respectfully? Or do you think that there's a balance? Um, As our wonderful producer, Maddie, said, why not both? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say very simply, I would much rather have perks than respect. I, as I've grown older, realize I just like don't care what a supervisor at work like thinks about me as a person. I guess unless they're firing me, but like whatever, like we're just all here getting paid to do a job. I'd rather have like friends and family or like cool baristas at a coffee shop who intimidate me, respect me. Um, And because like, you know, you can't eat respect. And in my limited experience of working at a startup, I don't know, it was awesome to get like meals provided for me. And I've, I've worked in a kombucha on tap space and that does kind of rule. And, and I, I'm aware that the reason they do that is to like keep you passively enjoying stuff, to stay longer hours because they give you things. So you like trick yourself into thinking like, this is cool. We're having beers at the office at seven. Wait, why am I still at the office at seven? But I don't know. I think like work can kind of suck. So some perks make it better. And hearing what you say about like knowing your employees outside of the office, sometimes I'm like, I just don't want anyone to know anything about me. You know, like people I work with, this is weird to say, cause we're on the call with some people I work with. Um, but you know, I don't know. I think there's limits there. What do you think, Helen? I think number one is I want to get paid. <laughs> um, and I think, uh, you know, that's above like <laughs> yep. respect that's above perks. I feel like at a lot of the places that were offering these perks, the employees did, 
get paid handsomely mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. They might have a lot of equity. But I know some of them, I know some of some startups where it's just like, hey, you know, we're going to pay you a way lower salary than you're probably worth. But look, you get this ping pong table. Look, you get these bean bags. Like, and I don't think that, yeah, I don't think perks are but like except, you know, perks aren't going to pay for anything, right? They're just going to um, they make you feel good while you're there and maybe, you know, let you forget how your life is a little bit miserable when you go home. That being said, I think that I also, you know, do totally want respect at work in the sense that I don't want to be treated poorly. Mm. And I don't think that you should have to set that like that. There's, you know, those things are mutually exclusive. You can have perks and also should be treated well. Those things shouldn't be traded off as far as. You know, my employer knowing what I do outside of work, I've had employers who are really interested and invested in what I do outside of work. And while I totally dig that from them, um, I, I'm i kind of with you, Michael. Like, I didn't really, I'm like, I, that's my personal life. I don't really want you, like, kind of involved involved in that. So, yeah, it's kind of where I'm at with it. Once where I used to work, people wanted to get involved and someone found out that I like did comedy stuff and a bunch of people showed up at a show I was doing from work. And I think they thought they were being like cool and supportive. But I was like, fuck, you guys don't know. I do really weird and absurdist stuff where the point is to antagonize the audience, not to just like do yuck ups. And now I'm just like screaming at the audience and you're like, is he losing his mind? But <laughs> so, yeah, maybe just like check if you're going to show up at your coworkers thing. Sorry, back to you, Sarvi. <laughs> Oh, I'm dying for you. I need to hear more about that story. (laughs) We'll Um, put that on a bonus episode. So as I mentioned before, I've worked at a ton of startups and I've seen a lot of free perks throughout my career. So I'm not as amazed by them as I was when I was younger. Um, What really bothers me is when I would join a company and then it would have all these amazing perks and then they'd slowly start to like phase them out because Horrible. they're super expensive to maintain. Um, and I would fucking hate it because I would be like, you got me through the door because of obviously a strong compensation package, which included in some ways these perks. And it's like I got in the house and then you took out all the furniture one by one. Um, it sounds like being in a relationship where like, Early on, someone just like they say all the right things. They'll drive you to the airport. They want to be helpful. And then you like commit and then you're just like, can you be quiet? I need to sleep till 10. So that's just me to be clear. I would be that person. But that's what it makes me feel like. At startups, especially like where we're working around the clock and we're working so hard. And it's nice to take to use some of these perks when we do have time. And so when there are no when there were no perks, I started to feel resentful. And I would think to myself, well, the team at Twitter gets this, the team at Netflix gets this, like, why don't we get anything? Um, And I'm very similar to the two of you. I don't like sharing things at work about my personal life. I will just straight up lie if somebody asks where (laughs) I live or like how many siblings I have or whatever. Like, I just fucking don't say anything about myself because I feel like it's nobody's business. And I don't know these people. Like, you're strangers to me. We work at the same place, but I don't know who you are. Um, And... But I will say about the respect component, I haven't had great managers throughout my career. And I am used to being treated very poorly. And it wasn't until this past year when I had an incredible manager that I realized the power of respect and the power of somebody actually caring about you and wanting to know your interests outside of your current function. Because I was very honest with my manager and I said, this is what 
I want to do. It's completely different than the trajectory I'm on now. And she's like, okay, cool. Like, what can I do to help you? Like, I'll do anything. I will, you know, give you to other teams. I'll push other teams to to take you on. I'll do whatever it takes. And she's amazing. She's my ideal manager. She's exactly the type of manager that is discussed in this this research that leaders should nurture people's talents and interests. And my manager moved to an, uh, another company and I was heartbroken. I mean, truly, I was so sad all of July. And she's still the person I will call when I want to talk through something or if I'm having a difficult time finding a path forward. And I think there's a balance that that we need, especially people who work in um, high pressure companies. I want those perks because it makes me feel a little bit better about having no work-life balance. I like to think, well, at least I get free food every week or at least I get a monthly stipend towards wellness, which will help pay for my therapy sessions or my massage that I need as a result of working 60 hour weeks. Um, So I think there needs to be both, but I do, I will say that especially in startup environments, there there is a, a significant lack of respect. So it's nice that the younger than 35 crowd has realized that and they're trying to. Good for those, the kids. Yeah. I do think it's interesting to know how in tech though and startups, you know, very into perks and spending money on that. But there's so many examples of anytime workers try to form a union in any place like that, they get shut down so aggressively. And in a sense, it's like, you know, in my humble opinion, what, what's more respect than having like a great contract negotiated, knowing that you have guaranteed time off, having like a set of rights. And I just think it's like funny sometimes how these companies will spend a ridiculous amount of money on perks and all this stuff. But then you're like, hey, we wanted to form a union so we can negotiate fair contracts. And they're like, we will kill you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that kind of is I think we I don't know if you guys have followed the there's this new Instagram account. I actually don't know how new it is, but it's the um, it's called IOTSI stories. And it talks about it's it's basically where, oh, you know, people in the film industry will comment about how, you know, the, the working conditions that they have and will like share these brutal stories, honestly, about, you know, the kind of stuff that they've had to go through on set and how like underpaid they are. And these are like, you know, I mean, below the line gets treated like dirt on a lot of these productions. Right. And so um, Helen, can we say what uh, below the line means for folks? Who oh, are not- of course. No, no, below the line. And I may even like butcher. Yeah. Sorry. I meant to actually um, add that. So so IATSE is the hang on. Let me make sure I'm not part of it. So but it's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. So it's the um, basically the it's, the it's a union, right? I think for the. For yeah. The, um, for everyone who, who like, makes yeah, and below the, the magic line, happen, who you don't see on camera. Exactly. Yeah. For everyone who actually makes these movies like what they are, you know, these productions, what they are. Um, that's that's it. And that's and also that's true for below the line. Above the line would be like your key creatives, like your um, like, you know, obviously your let's see. Well, I think DPs are below the line, right? Somebody in the comments probably knows this better than I do. But um, like your director, your um, producers, they're all above the line, whereas crew would be below the line. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, so these, you know, one of the uh, one of the stories with that someone shared was that they're not thinking about having therapists on set. Right. Which just seemed like like with the, they're like that's a perk of you know like well, hey look we'll bring you a therapist who can you know help you sort out you know the the stress of work and all these problems and people are like this is a joke like just make the working environment yeah. less horrible you don't need and like and I honestly like Serbia I think it's interesting I don't know I kind of feel like 
those 60 hour weeks, like I was, was working with a startup where I was working those hours. And I ultimately found that even though I did, you know, I did have respect at work. And I think it was largely because I was putting in that time and it was like, hey, look, we need to keep you. So we are going to be really nice to you because you work yourself to death. Like it was um, the kind of the some of the trade offs we would get just weren't it wasn't worth the it wasn't worth the exhaustion and like the emotional labor for me personally anyway. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what we get put through. It's like, okay, you can, you need to stay here and you need to just work your tail off and bust, you know, bust your ass for 80 hours a week. But Hey, like, you know, you get the ping pong table, like we said, and I don't know, for me, it just didn't work Get teach their own, you know? Yeah, no, I totally feel you there that like, eventually it seems cool at first, but it doesn't balance out. And eventually you're like, you know, I've worked multiple 12 hour days and it's cool that they paid for my sweet green lunch, but I'm still exhausted. So, yeah, I think where I fall down on this is like, I just want like normal working hours. I want to not be treated like shit and get some cheap snacks. Don't have to be crazy, but I never mind a fridge where there's some sparkling waters and then some like decent non sugared granola bars and little things like that. You don't go over the top, but just do a little something, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think that would be lovely. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, definitely let us know if you are working in a place where you have crazy perks or you don't. Let us know what you want from an office space, especially if you're under 35, because we are all in our mid-50s, so do not relate to you anymore. Um, now, something many of you might relate to is that you have debt or you're carrying a credit card balance. I know that I've had periods in my life where I've carried so much credit card balance that I've I've been scared and I thought something bad would happen to me. Um, but this episode sponsor, Upstart, wants to help with that, okay? Because if you get afraid to look at your credit card statements, you're not alone. I, I often don't look at balances or things for months on end and my partner has to be like, when's the last time you logged into your bank account? And I have to say, I don't know my password anymore because I'm afraid to look at it. But Upstart wants to help you get back on track with it. It's a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online, whether you're paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment because one is easier than a lot. Now, Upstart knows that you're more than just a credit score. They want to expand access to affordable credit. And unlike other lenders, they'll consider your income and current employment to find a smart rate for your loan. You just got to do a five-minute online rate check. You can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash wisecrack. That's upstart.com slash wisecrack. Don't forget to use our URL and let them know we sent you. Um, loan amounts are going to be determined based on credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Once again, go to upstart.com slash wisecrack. Uh, and then before we get back into the next topic as well, shouts to our friend Dude Abides in the chat who let us know his slaps and chats. Um, slaps, getting his car fixed after a month of transmission, and it was free due to a warranty, plus joining Twitter yesterday. Big day to see Dude Abides on Twitter. Go find him there. I uh, I linked to his account on mine, so if you follow me on Twitter, just see that. Go follow him. And his chaps work slow at the moment, so that's, that's never fun. Um, but speaking of something fun... Did anyone read last week's IPCC report? Couldn't bring myself to do it. Same. Yeah, so, I could not. Yeah. yeah Just sucked. summaries. 
So in case you are the sort of person who avoids apocalyptic news to focus on becoming a happy and well-adjusted person, last week the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released a report about how stuff's going with the climate. It concluded things like, thanks to a continued rise in global temperatures, we can expect more wildfires, floods, heat waves, and water shortages over the next 30 years. Um, But wait, you might be asking, what if we do good things? Well, they also figured out even if nations manage to impose the strongest cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, the planet is all but certain to exceed the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement's more ambitious goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And for all our North American friends, not even North American, American friends, that's 2.17 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I'll read one last quote from an article in the LA Times about this. It is unequivocal that human interference has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land, um, and it's extremely likely that emissions from energy and industry were to blame. So it was a very bad report, and to be very frank, the 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 TLDR was like we're fucked, um, and that every metric that that climate scientists have used to say if we just get to this point in ten years or this point in twenty years, we are not on track to to make any of those right now, uh, unless there are drastic changes. And there's a lot of response to this. On the internet last week, um, some good, some apocalyptic, some bad, some victim blamey. But there's one article, we'll link to it in the description, that I saw in the LA Times that to me like encapsulated a lot of maybe what I think is a bad response to this. And it was an article that was like, here's five things you can do. You, Serby, you, Helen, you, Maddie, um, to stop climate change. And there were things like travel less, insulate your home and lower the thermostat, vote. See the big picture. And finally, cut yourself a little slack, Um, (laughs) which, you know, always fun. Um, And uh, a meme that was going around this week is, well, I guess an article that's been turned into a meme. I'm sure everyone's seen this. There was a 2017 Guardian article that cited a study that that showed that 71% of global emissions were produced by just 100 companies. So a lot of people in response to this news were basically like, Hey, everyone, it's literally a bunch of big companies and governments doing this. Let's be mad at them and not blame ourselves. But then I saw a very popular humorist and writer on their social media account. I'm not going to throw them under the bus. This person posted that actually that study is wrong because the real point is that all of these companies produce so much greenhouse gas and emissions because we, Michael, Serby, Helen and Maddie, want to buy so much stuff so that technically it is our fault because our consumption is driving production. This made me feel a type of way, um, but I'm curious, and let's start here. Like, I, I know that you are well-adjusted humans that didn't make yourself feel terrible by reading the report, but like, in general, what, what, do you, what is your response? Like, how do you feel when news like this comes out and we all spend a week feeling apocalyptic? Terrified. Honestly, this type of news like throws me into a spiral which is why I have a hard time reading about it. It's it's the kind of thing that genuinely keeps me up at night and makes me not want to have children, which is what I talked about with uh, Tom in the last episode where I was like, it's because of all these things that now I don't want to have kids. Um, and I... I, I try to do like on a on a micro level, like I try to do everything I can do to like help. And but I always feel like it's not enough. Like anything that I individually do, like I insulate my house, I recycle, I do all these different little things, but I feel like it's never enough. And I feel hopeless. That sucks. Yeah, we're on the exact same page, actually. I think it's 
that was part of the reason I didn't read it is because every I've inundated myself with this stuff for um you know, over the last few years. And it's just been every time I do, it's like, it's like you said, Serby, you know, you spiral, like I'm the same way, like I'm moping my just if, cause it feels like hopeless, it feels like there's nothing you can do. And I like, don't want to do anything because it feels like, what's the point? Like, you know, um, but at the same time, you know, you're grasping for control in other ways. Like, for example, this sounds kind of silly probably, but I would, you know, like when I was traveling between San Francisco and LA back when I was, you know, had uh, a job up in San Francisco, I would take the train back and forth um, rather than take, you know, a, a rather than fly because it just made me feel extremely icky, like just gross that, you know, I might be, um, wait, can you guys still hear me? Okay. I think my yeah. phone's just, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Just checking. Um, yeah. So it was just kind of like, you know, you feel like you have to grasp at something. It's that like fallacy of control. Right. And, um, definitely, of course we all have, you know, should do our part, but, um, the reality is, and at least from my perspective, that there's only so much like each individual can do. And that like collective action from like groups of people who aren't involved with making these big decisions around, you know, uh, around, you know, policy and that kind of thing. Like we, we just don't have that kind of control. Yeah. And it, it, no, it's interesting what you said, because I do think a certain generation has been raised with this like mindset of that this stuff is largely our fault and comes down to individual decisions. Like I remember as a kid, I used to watch Nickelodeon a lot, shouts to Nickelodeon. Um, but Nickelodeon did a thing called the big help. And it was sort of like a community service and environmental thing. And there was, I've talked about this before, maybe on this podcast, but there was a song that I heard as like a six or seven year old. That was like, something was like, make the planet happy, take a shorter shower or something like that. And I, for most of my childhood would take showers with this terror of like, if I do not get the soap out of my hair or whatever soon, I'm going to kill the planet. Like it's going to be on me. And I do think like, especially when I was younger, I really took a lot of that on. And I think now sometimes it feels like two things are happening. One that we fall into blaming ourselves because it makes us feel less helpless, right? Because if we tell ourselves, if I just do X, Y, and Z, we can make things better, which in a weird sense, that guilt feels better than I have no control over the fate of a, of a planet and ecosystem that sustains human life. And I might not be able to fix it. That's real fucking scary. And on the flip side, that narrative plays right into like, you know, Exxon Mobil being able to make ads that are like, we're doing everything we can to care for sea animals. Exxon Mobil, we're here for you. And it's like, no, like you're just then putting shit on us. Or like when BP sponsors some like community service project, people volunteer. So I think with a lot of like the rhetoric in the past week, I don't know. It seems like there's these two poles that are, that are scary. Like one is this total defeatism. Like we're completely fucked who cares. And the other is like this kind of like Protestant moralism of it is up to all of us individually to be good little boys and girls so that God will save the planet. Um, and I, I haven't found either of those like satisfy. I understand them from a psychological level that we're just trying to cope, but they just feel unsatisfying. Yeah, it feels like everything, like all of the rhetoric around climate change right now is one big cope because there's like for most of us, there's nothing that we can really do. Besides, I mean, again, I don't know. I haven't looked at the data. I don't know what collective action would be required mm -hmm. in order to like change things. But the fact is that, you know, it's not going to 
take, you know, it's going to be more than just individuals. I want to come back to something you said, though, Michael, about, you know, the idea of of us being the ones who drive the demand for, you know, yeah. these companies keep like pulling out these. Like, I think that's this is just yet another uh I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, OK, yeah, we um, we are just completely slaves to our desires and should, you know, therefore can take absolutely no responsibility for ourselves as far as as far as consumption goes. But we do live in a society that like, you know, for example, I, I feel like until fairly recently, you know, wearing secondhand stuff was considered something you only did if you were like, you know, poor. Right. Like that was something that was like you know, considered it was looked down on. It's like, you know, and I thankfully, like, I think younger people are waking up to the fact that like, dude, most of this shit is stupid. Like we don't need like nice clothes to be like have value. That's that's ridiculous. Like I understand the desire for those things, but I think like, you know, the way that we things have been perceived socially was that your value was intrinsically linked to consumption and to like, you know, that's that's where your worth is is about. And until we shift our values as a society, I think which sounds absurd and kind of grandiose, but like until we move away from seeing value as it, and having that, you know, intrinsically linked with stuff and having that message be put out by to us, you know, not only for from the people around us, but from, you know, companies from the time that we're born, obviously, because that's what they do. They sell stuff. I think that that's not going to go away. So, I, you know. Yeah. No, but it's a, it's that vibe of like no one wanted to drink Coca-Cola until we were to- told we needed to drink Coca-Cola. Like no one needed to have their smartphone 24/7 until an object was designed to have an addictive um and desire-based thing. So I do think there's I, I was very annoyed last week by some of the like it's on us. It's not the company's fault. It's us. And the companies only do it cuz we do it like well, but the point is to get back to like the train thing. Well, why do we all need cars? Because we don't have adequate public transportation that allows us to go places. I know uh, people have, we've all been different places. I know Serbia spent a lot of time in Europe and stuff like that. Like you go to a lot of other cities and a lot of other countries and you don't need a car there because they just have a public transportation system, many of which run on green energy that allow you to do that. So in that case, like, sure, you could say if you live in like London or Amsterdam or whatever, maybe you are an asshole if you have a car and you don't need to because you don't need to have it. But if you live in most sprawling American cities, like, what are you going to do? Live in Houston and not have a car or, or move to, to Denver or L.A. or whatever. So that's not I don't know. It's just like that's not on us that we don't have an infrastructure that makes it possible for us to do that. Sorry, I'm ranting. No, totally. <laughs> mm. I mean, yeah, I want to add one last thing on this, actually, is that like the. I think what what I've followed this kind of, you know, the no car movement. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. and I'm not super, super familiar with it. Just kind of been looking um, a little bit into these other kinds of more radical ways of, of trying to curb, you know, climate change and that kind of the thinking that this is kind of the thinking that, you know, our society, our, you live in a society, I keep saying that, but like, we you know, do. we are very, it's a very car centric culture, especially, you know, in these big cities like Los Angeles, for example, you know, duh, like how, how the fuck are you going to get across the city if you don't have a car? I mean, we have the bus system, but like, it's, it's poorly maintained from my experience and it's not, you know, it's, it's difficult to be able to get to do things efficiently, which again is required by the society that we live in, you know, to have to, you know, we have to be at shit on time. We have to be able to, you know, do these things we have. And that's why, you know, and I just think it sucks that so much of the burden of this falls on people for who like, 
to, it's it's really messed up, I think, to think, you know, it's, or it's easy to say, okay, you know, we should just get rid of cars, right? But then it's like, all right, but there's a lot of people who have to commute from like hours outside of the city to come in to work. They have to, you know, they their jobs are here. They have to be able to live. And so, you know, the burden of these things so often follows on people who don't have any other options. I don't know. I'm going to getting off track, but yeah, I just think there's something frustrating about that. I think that other countries, well, first of all, you make a good point about that, Helen. Um, So I think that other countries are, I feel like they take a better approach to this sort of thing. Like the Netherlands, for example, um, I'm forget. I'm going to, I don't know the exact years and things like that, but they, they're, they said that no car, only electric cars will be able to be sold after say 2026 or whatever the year is. And after that year, you're not allowed to have any other car unless it's like electric. So there are a lot of Teslas and things like that, but they're challenging all of these companies to come up with new technology to, ad- to adopt green tech in order to save the planet in that way. And I think that's a great way of doing it to just ban something and put the put the burden on these companies to rise to the challenge, especially if that technology is available. Um, so I was really happy to hear about that. And I would like to see more of those sorts of things. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. If you guys, I promise this is related. Do y'all remember the movie Roger Rabbit? Yeah. So a thing that people forget about that movie, and I forgot it until I rewatched it and learned this, a big theme of the movie is about how, so, so, you might know this, you might not. In the early part of the 20th century, the city of Los Angeles had one of the largest public transit systems in the country. You could get from, you know, Pasadena to Venice Beach with one change or whatever. And for anyone who's not from this area, this is like a long way. And today that would be like an hour and a half in the car in traffic. Um, so it's like, well, why did this major city, the second largest city in the U.S., have this massive public transit system in like the 1930s and now it sucks? Well, because the oil, the gas companies and a bunch of other conglomerates lobbied the government to get everything ripped up to build highways on this promise of the freedom that cars would give. It was a massive marketing and lobbying campaign in which a city destroyed their public transportation system. And by many metrics, public transit in the city of Los Angeles was better like a hundred years ago than it is now, which is insane because a hundred years ago, I'm just going to assume a hundred years ago, you could die of herpes. I don't know if that's true. I'm just going (laughs) to say it. Uh, and now you just like go to the, the, the like Rite Aid minute clinic and you're good to go. I don't know if that's true. That makes it sound like I have a lot of herpes experience. I don't, but if you do, I'm not judging you, but I I haven't, I haven't, but that's, you know, because I, I, I've been a safe person, but if you have, no one's judging you and that's not what culture binge is here for. That said, it's it's like, we look back and we're like, well, why does this happen? You know? A movie like Roger Rabbit shows us a lot of things have happened. A lot of them involve the confluence of like government and private interests that have created a system of dependence on cars and fuel. And because those problems weren't created by like our individual decisions, sadly, they're not going to be fixed in that way, in my humble opinion. And that's, I think, the scary thing with all of this, the structural aspect. Um, I will say that I am excited about some, some art that's, come out recently that deals with climate stuff in interesting ways. Like Alexandra Kleeman's new novel, um, is it called Some Nothing New Under the Sun? Um, is sort of like a 
climate change based noir thriller. Uh, I just picked it up the other day. I'm excited to read that. Um, Adam McKay's new movie, uh, Don't Look Up, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and a bunch of other people is sort of like a climate allegory about two astronauts that realize an asteroid is about to hit the Earth and no one will believe them and they start losing their minds. So, you know, <laughs> it's how a- Leonardo DiCaprio talks so much about uh, climate change and the importance of saving the planet. But this asshole is flying around the world in his private jet. Like, fuck you. I love it. Oh, don't even get me started. Yeah. Yacht and everything. Like, what an asshole. So absurd. He's like, person did a fabulous job, though. Like, that's some A plus positioning right there. You know who's who's better about this stuff that doesn't get the credit? Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo is the rare famous actor who like holds political positions and stuff and like moral things that I think like lives up to them for the most part and at least isn't full of shit of that but that's also hard too because like with leo you're totally right then it's like he's also put millions into like financing projects about this sort of stuff but once again you can't like buy your way out of hell that's sort of like how the catholics used to do dispensation so you could be a horrible person but then give the church money and still go to heaven um speaking of people that might go to hell helen not helen but (laughs) helen you're gonna tell us we're gonna talk about something didn't know this existed, but you're going to talk to us about the dark side of the hedgehog trend. I'll be honest. Until I read the article you sent us, I didn't A, know that there was a hedgehog trend. I didn't B, know that there was a dark side to the trend that I didn't know existed. All I knew is that I like hedgehogs. They look pretty cool. But by the end of the piece that you sent us, which I think was in Wired, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I felt very bad. So... Helen, talk to us about what the hell is happening with hedgehogs and the internet and people not understanding how to take care of exotic animals. We're going to get into all of that. So, yeah, so the story came from Wired reporter Noelle Matier, who fell down a hedgehog influencer rabbit hole, and what she found at the bottom was not very cuddly. Ultimately, the article kind of takes the stab at answering a question, what happens to the animals when a species goes viral, which we've seen a lot um, over the last, I think, few years, especially since Instagram got big, obviously, you know, you know, you see these uh, with exotic animals, especially they've become incredibly popular. People start trying to buy them. Anyway, a little bit more context for you. So basically, you know, she covered the the kind of the history of the Internet and hit Internet hedgehog trend, pardon me, um, which actually goes back to 1991, which is the year that Sonic the Hedgehog came out on Sega Genesis. And um, there was this American animal importer named Richard Allen Stubbs, who uh, basically somebody made him an offer of like 2,000 hedgehogs for 50 cents a head. <laughs> and um, which was what was interesting was the reason that he that he came into the possession of these things was that at that time they had reached kind of like a nuisance level population. So they were, there were far too many, um, you know, pygmy hedgehogs and, um, they needed to, to do something with them because they were starting to die of starvation. Um, anyway, so this guy was kind of doing his thing. He started flying him back and forth. He was, you know, got, got him into the U S you know, started this trend among, you know, I guess, people with a penchant for exotic animals. And he, um, he, you know, that was, that's kind of how they got into the United States. But though they were, you know, kind of in, again, exotic animal circles, the popularity of them on Instagram and on just kind of in, I guess, greater mainstream culture didn't kick off until Instagram became really popular around 2013. And so basically, you know, we started seeing um, like these exotic 
you know, animal fans, you know, started getting Instagrams and documenting their critters. Um, and they just real quickly, people realized, holy shit, these things are adorable. And um, so pretty much, you know, the story goes that while the influencer hedgehogs themselves um, are not being abused and, you know, the they actually are, are taken well taken care of, which would make sense because these guys command like 10 grand a post sometimes on Instagram. Um, you know, nobody's exploiting them in the background the way they do with, you know, say child pop stars. Nobody's feeding them little bits of cocaine. The problem is that they are, their popularity has led to an uptick in people trying to purchase them. And what they don't realize is that, as is the case with many exotic pets, these dudes need a lot more care than it looks like on Instagram. Okay, they they like they poop constantly, pretty much, which I thought was a strange fact. I didn't that was my favorite anymore. part of the article, and it's just like they poop much more than you would ever yeah. imagine. I know. I was like, <laughs> what? I mean, I yeah, but I have to look into that because my mind is kind of blown. Um, they <laughs> are they they uh require a you know a special veterinarian to take care of them. Um, so an exotic pet veterinarian, and also. They get cancer a lot, which was kind of the most the saddest fact to me. There's, these guys are, I think this at some point in the article, it's something along the lines of tumor riddled, which I thought was really horrible. But um, yeah, they're just very prone to getting cancer, which, um, you know, when you look at these these accounts of these, you know, uh, hedgehog influencers, you actually see that a lot of them go through multiple hedgehogs. So they'll start out with like one hedgehog and, you know, that's their that's their their star and and then that hedgehog will die there will be a memorial for it and then they'll get a new one and this happens kind of fairly quickly so basically um anyway but most people who were just you know buying these guys they don't know that so this has led to a lot of hedgehogs or hedgies as they are known in this community which is also the term for the people who own hedgehogs and the pets they're everyone's called hedgy in this circle um it's people buy them and they wind up needing to be rehomed. And a reporter talked to one woman who had actually taken in 13 of them, which is a lot of hedgehogs, man. That's just a lot, a lot of, hedgehog. a lot of hedgehog excrement. That's <laughs> so exactly. much head shit. I want to see it. I don't want to see it, but I'm just so curious of what it's like. Right. Mountains. It's just <laughs> mountains of it. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so so this is the story, and again, you know, really, I think the 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 theme here is the kind of you know, again, you know, species go viral on the internet, and then something comes out of it. My first question for you guys: Do you guys follow any hedgehog influencers? No, <laughs> no, I, I I only just learned it is a thing. I follow quite a few um, Australian Shepherd influencers, but no hedgehog influencers. Okay. Well, that's, that's fair. I mean, do you follow any other, you know, okay. So you said German shepherds. What about like Guinea pigs? Cause those are really popular too. Well, Australian shepherd. Let's not bring the Germans into this. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I like some follow some accounts that are animal heavy and I follow a couple of Twitter accounts that are like cute videos of animals. So I like, like this stuff, like looking at the, the article you sent Helen, like as I was reading through it, all the pictures like, wow, wow. And then halfway through it was like, Oh God. Oh no. How did they do this? But I think they're cute. Like, they seem super cute. <clears throat> they do. And um, they bring a lot of people joy. But what was what was you guys, you know, what's your take on this? You know, as, what did you think? 
I felt deeply uncomfortable reading <laughs> the article. Like even just like the first paragraph when when the when the author was like, "Oh, I just kept following more and more accounts." Like something about that made me feel sick. Like I don't know what it was, but just like the idea of someone was just like, "Oh my god, I followed like 500 of these accounts." It 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 made me really uncomfortable. Just that alone was was too much for me. Yeah. I think it makes me think that like there should be a moratorium on new household pets. Like, I think one, you know, we could get some animal activists or expert on here who would tell us that like any of us who have dogs or cats are just like monsters or something. Sure. Whatever. That's fine. But we're already there. We already have domesticated dogs and cats and a few other things. It is what it is. The damage has been done. I feel like we just have to bu- just stop it. Stop there. No no new animals like this because people don't understand them. They see a thing and they're like, the thing is cute. I must own the cute thing. It's like, that's a goddamn animal. That's a real existing thing that has a habitat and participates in an ecosystem and has rhythms and patterns that are not yours. Like even reading about how they're nocturnal. So these idiots are just like, wake up nocturnal animal and get inside this cute helmet so I can take a picture. And like, The window, no one can see this, but there's a window I'm looking at right now. If you're ever watching one of these streams and you see my eyes jut up, it's because there's trees outside my window and tons of squirrels in them. I fucking love the squirrels. They're cute. They're fun. They do tricks. But I'm not going to go outside and bring a squirrel inside my house and say that you're mine now. The squirrel has a home in the trees, not in my house. I don't know. That's that's how it makes me feel. I know I extrapolated a bit here, but. Pet ownership in general is fascinating to me. I've never had pets. so I'm just interested in general by the concept of people owning other living creatures. Um, like just, just like, I just find that whole thing very interesting. Yeah. It's weird. Like when you really think about it, when you like abstract from the fact that we've normalized it, if yeah. you were from another sentient culture, you'd be like, wait, so you just like own this like useless thing that and yeah. you clean up its shit like it just right. shits and you follow it and you say give me more shit buddy yeah that's that's how i feel about the whole thing like i just find the whole thing so interesting and then like people want to show pictures of the other living creature that they own like this is a, a like a living being and you own it yeah and it's just uh, weird although speaking of pictures of living beings that people own i'd rather see a dog picture over a baby picture any day of the week same no Maybe like a cute toddler video when a kid does or says funny things. I just don't. A lot of babies just look like little like mounds of flesh with these weird eyes and like they can't do anything. Whereas like puppies are cute. Cats can be funny. Like anything that's like three months and younger, I'm kind of like, ugh, because like newborns are are not the greatest. But like it depends also on the baby, like really fat babies I'm really interested in. Oh, I I love a fat baby. Little meatballs. Yeah, like then all day, like show me fat baby pictures. Yeah. I if you have a baby, baby, just feed them butter. Make them a fat baby. <laughs> Send us pictures. This is this is where we need to get Tom Wyman back on to tell us about the ethics of fattening your child. I was <clears> going <throat> to say, yeah, yeah. The ethics of turning them into a content farm, which is a thing mm. also, yeah. you know, um, with, with hedgehogs and humans. Is there a hope for this, Helen? Like, can anyone do anything or is is the hog out of the bag now? And there's no way to put it back. You know, like, are there regulations in place? Like, I, you know, I saw that there's exotic animal regulations and only certain pet hospitals or animal hospitals can take care of them. But do we think this trend will will stop? Well, it's 
Well, for hedgehogs specifically, it's illegal to own them in several states, including California, um, along with a lot of other exotic animals. Um, but I think this is just kind of a bigger cultural phenomenon that we see with with everything. I mean, this is the same thing that's happening, for example, with succulents, which are, I don't know if you guys have seen this going, uh, they're, I wouldn't say they're in, oh, actually, actually, I need to, to, to double check on this, but I think they're going endangered in some parts of really? um in some parts of yeah, because of this massive succulent trend, right, where everybody yeah. wants to have succulents because they just look so great in your Instagram feed and you know that kind of thing. Um, and it's not just that; it's just that we create this. It's just again, it's just this is what marketing does. Uh, you know, not marketing specifically, but this is just mm. the the what is what is. You know, as humans, we have a fear of missing out, and so you know when we see these like adorable things come up on our feeds, we you know whether it be a really cute little plant or a really cute little hedgehog or a guinea pig or whatever, you know, there's that's going to create this sense of, like I gotta have that, like oh my god, can I want I want one of those, and the other you know these things these photos of these hedgehogs would kind of uh, just as a side note they they bring a lot of people joy. Um, they you know they all the time on these influencers accounts you'll see. Uh, comments that are like, I really needed to see this today. I've been so depressed and just like scrolling through Mr. Pokey's feed makes me feel alive again. And it really it fucking sucks because, um, you know, there's just greater ethical things that go along with so, this. And I think, um, yeah. Is what you're arguing, Helen, that if we just had a more robust and accessible mental health care system, that people wouldn't need to cruelly abuse hedgehogs for content? I, I mean, or better office parks where they offer free therapy sessions. <laughs> we yeah. definitely like that's definitely a true statement. Do I think that that would stop people from wanting to adopt, you know, animals because like, you know, like think about Paris Hilton and the chihuahuas, right? And the carrying mm. your dog around in the bag. Remember when that was, you know, the big thing? And then I think like, yeah. like that's, that's what happens. Those breeds spike in popularity. And then ultimately people don't, they just see them as accessories the same way that sometimes I think people do with kids. Uh, a, a wisecrack when you get hired you get a hedgehog sent to your house for to be your emotional support pet it's one of the perks there's just my house smells like shit constantly um well th well thank you for bringing this up because i mean i guess thank you for bringing it up helen because i never would have heard of this otherwise but also it's like why did you do this to us because now we know this and we can't unknow it so everyone who's who's listening and watching you're in it with us now as well now I would be very curious if any of our audience, if you have, I, I won't say, I'll say unusual pets, illegal pets, we won't snitch, anything like that. We'd love to hear about it. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics we talked about today. So if you've had some weird situations with office perks, if you have thoughts on the fact that the planet is dying, um, if you've had some weird pets, let us know. And you can hit us up at culturebinge at wisecrack.co. That is culture binge at wisecrack.co with no M. And you can give us a call at 213-534-8807. That is 213-534-8807. Call us. We've been getting a lot of emails recently, not as many calls. It's fun to hear your voices. Um, and, you know, you can be anonymous if you don't want your name set on the air, but we'd love to hear you. Um, we'll go through a few things real quick. I might just summarize some of these. We had a lot of good emails recently. Um, the first one is from Fernando S. And this is in in uh, response to two episodes ago, the topic narrative disconnect post-pandemic that our buddy Raymond brought up. And, and, and the TLDR of Fernando's email is that disaster movies evoke the feelings of real world events, but don't directly put us in that reality. 
So it's a way of like addressing feelings and anxieties without actually addressing them, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So he talks about like disaster movies and how they let us sort of feel that fear about like the world ending without the movie being about like how the world might literally end. Um, he brought up an example of a French movie called Oxygen, which I haven't seen, but I guess it's on Netflix, um, about a woman who's sort of like in a capsule losing oxygen, but kind of as a sort of metaphor for thinking about COVID and pandemics. Um, so I don't know if anyone has thoughts on that. I think that's like a very good read on disaster movies and things like that, that they let us feel things without really thinking about them in a scary way. Um, yeah, I, I really like that email. It was really yeah. interesting. And I feel like even as I was reading it, I could feel the same feelings that I've had while watching those disaster films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that it's great that art has that ability to through these sort of analogical situations create moments of catharsis. The only thing that sometimes with that, I'm like, Oh, but is this, is this making us so removed that we're not connecting this to reality? But who knows? We'll see. We're, we're about to enter, enter an era of much more overt, like climate disaster art. Um, we got an email from our bud, Megan Roach. This is in response to episode 57. Um, and this is about, we talked about people feeling guilty about taking time off of work. Um, and Megan said, I came across this moniker that people are calling the post-pandemic mass resignation, the great resignation. Um, and she sent us a video about why. Um, but yeah, and she says that, you know, but now as the U.S. is increasingly becoming a service-oriented economy, especially specifically in tech communications marketing, it relies on individual human talent to create that value, which reverses the leverage between corporations and workers, getting at the idea that we've had all these people quitting their jobs because they, they can and they have the power. So I know I already talked about this, but I like that idea, the great resignation. Have y'all known any more people or seen folks in your lives that are getting the hell, hell out of their jobs? Yeah, I mean... I think that's everybody's kind of they're reevaluating the way that uh, just as this says, they're reevaluating the way that they get treated at the office and what's really important to them. And so, you know, if they can get out of it, can afford to, then they will. That's yeah. what I've been saying anyway. So I've been um, hiring. And one thing that I've heard from a lot of candidates is they've asked how managers and the company dealt with leadership during the pandemic. And mm. I would say that of the five people I've interviewed over the last couple of weeks, four of them asked. And it was interesting because they all said that that's really important. How will a company lead during a time of crisis? Mm. And I'm assuming that that their current company didn't lead that well, which is why they're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, also would love to hear people like people's job quitting stories. So please email us or call us with those. We would love to hear about that. A um, couple more emails to get to really quick. I know we're running up on time. This is from Leo in response to the infinitely full of hope episode where he talked about Tom Wyman and his book. Um, so, so Leo talks about the experience of family and sort of creating family and, and raising kids in the queer community and, um, and Leo says, I would love to hear what y'all think philosophically. I volunteer and organize with a group of non-binary and women of color. We are grounded in a reproductive justice framework building upon black feminist ideas. This means we believe um, we have the right to, personally, to personal bodily autonomy. We have the right to decide whether or not to have children. We have the right to raise children we have in safe, sustainable communities. Um, 
And, and Leo talks about some really cool advocacy work they're doing. And just this idea that, you know, when we talked to Tom, we were obviously talking about a more of like a heteronormative framework of having a kid, that kid giving you hope. Um, and Leo's bringing up the creative and interesting ways people in the queer community are thinking about that. And actually, uh, Tom does mention this in his book. There's a, a queer theorist named Lee Edelman who has a book called No Future that's kind of about this question about like, how so much of our orientation towards the future involves traditional senses of reproduction and how in a sense that that's almost like served to like alienate certain queer theories about that sort of stuff and how a lot of like non-traditional and non-normative theories of family and reproduction are coming out of the community. So I don't know, just sounds very cool. I'm excited that Leo liked the episode and, and told us about the work they're doing. Thank you, Leo. Yeah, this yeah. was a great email. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ellen. Oh, no, I was just going to add that it was I think I hope that I think that idea should take off in all communities. Just the idea of, you know, it takes a village, which you guys talked about a little bit on the last podcast, I think, you know, child rearing should be a community activity. Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, too, like it's, you know, I think it's it's cool anytime people are thinking through like new ways of of family, of relationships of child rearing and all these things like we we've done things the way we've done them for thousands of years because people have done them that way so it's great to see people creatively look at things like that in new ways um and i'm excited to see for the rest of of, of my life at least until the planet kills me um how people will take on stuff like that in creative ways um last email i'll talk about this is from john and this is in response to episode 55 this is from a few weeks ago critical race theory and and john who comes from an American Midwest town that's 99% white shout to the Midwest Ophelia. Um, but basically it talks about how he feels like sometimes it, when it comes to like uncomfortable conversations about race in a smaller town or in a more traditional place where people are more homogenous, there, there's a struggle where people just don't want to like take the time to educate themselves or take the time to acknowledge that the way they've done things for a while is maybe wrong. Um, I don't know, as a, as, a, as a white Midwestern dude, I know in my life I've had many experiences where I've had to learn like, oh, the way I've thought about stuff was wrong. Um, I'm going to learn new things. And sometimes learning sucks because it makes you realize you're wrong and who wants to be wrong. But I, yeah, definitely appreciated John's email. Um, he also did something fun at the end. So before I get to that, if anyone did have thoughts on John's thoughts on, you know, people potentially being too lazy to learn about you know, new ways of thinking about race and society. So I don't want to not let you comment on that if you want to comment on that. I think he makes a good point that it's uncomfortable to come to the realization that your beliefs are wrong and that you are like you, you live your life thinking you're the good person and you have all the right um, ideas. And then when you're confronted with the fact that you're not, that's a difficult thing to accept. Yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Michael. Sorry. No, I'm just going to say this is, you know, this is the, the this connects to why I love philosophy as a way of looking at the world, you know, stuff like the unexamined life is unworth living. There's not worth living. And, you know, uh, Socrates explaining that the that real wisdom is like knowing that you don't know things and being open to reevaluating that and the danger of a non philosophical worldview being that you convince yourself you already know everything. So there isn't room to accept your own ignorance and examine your own assumptions. And I think that like, whether it's thinking about race or the climate or hedgehogs, you know, knowing that there's stuff you don't know creates the conditions for philosophical wisdom, boxing yourself off from new knowledge, um, sort of like gets out ahead of that and makes it impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
people um, have other priorities, other stuff they're worrying about. So it's yeah, just but hey, that too, I think. Thinking's hard, friends. Thinking is hard and it's scary. So, you know, but be brave. Now, the the, the other thing that uh, John put in the email um, is what type of scotches we would be. Um, so here's one for our, our fallen homie, Alec. To be clear, Alec's not dead. He's just in the woods. Um, Alec would be a Glenmorangie, a tale of cake, a uh, sweet, mellow scotch finished in Takaji cask that is deceptively complex. Serbi is the Balveni Portwood 21 year. Finished in 30 year old port pipes, it has creamy, silky, smooth fruit flavors and finishes with just a bit of spice. Michael, that, that's me, is um, Ardbug and Ah, a huge, smoky peat bomb that tastes of bacon over a campfire. It is super intense. But you always find yourself wanting more. Um, thank you so much for that, John. And anyone who wants to get in touch with us, whether it's in an email or a review, tell us what we are in some category of thing. We would like you to do that. Um, but this has been Culture Binge for this week. Thank you so much for being here. Now, before we go, um, if you want to get in touch with the people you're listening to right now and be nice, encouraging, or critical in a productive way. Um, where can people find you on social media? We'll start with you, Helen. If people want to follow you, see what you have to say, and maybe respond to you in a, in a kind way about things, where could they do that? Sure. So I'm most active right now on Instagram, where I'm at F-L-O-E-R-S-H, at Flourish. Serby, where can people Tweet find me. you? At Patel 22 Tweeter. Be, be cool about it. Don't be weird about it, but Twitter. Um, you can tweet me as well at, um, at Michael O. Burns, and I'm on Instagram at, at Michael underscore O underscore Burns. I don't, I guess someone had my full name on there. That's really annoying. Um, and also, you know, subscribe to all the good Wisecrack stuff that you like. Check out our Patreon. Look at the YouTube videos. Be a part of everything we're doing. And most importantly, get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. Thanks again, Helen, for being here. For Serbia and myself, this has been Culture Binge. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.